Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it is my pleasure to host Series 3 of the Emerge Australia Clinical Series, in which I have the pleasure to interview clinicians and researchers from all over the world whose critical work is dedicated to ME-CFS and long COVID. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of country and their connections to land, sea and community and pay my respect to Elders past and present, noting their continuing contributions, struggles and achievements. As we continue to reflect on the magnificent lyrics of John Lennon's Imagine, I can't help but wonder what a world it would be where we have no hunger or greed, a world without stigma or discrimination, where we have a brotherhood of man, especially in today's times, a world in which those with ME-CFS and long COVID are seen, heard and able to be cured. Imagine all the people. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Chris Armstrong, PhD, to our Emerge Australia podcast series. Chris is Director of the MECFS Collaboration at the University of Melbourne, where he began his PhD work in this field. Chris's research is undertaken in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and the the Bio 21 Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute. What a mouthful is that? At the University of Melbourne, he has an interest in the role that energy production plays in MECFS, particularly in connection to fatigue, brain fog, and PEM. Chris is a member of the working group which offers expertise and resources to the MECFS Collaborative Research Centre at Stanford University, where he conducted research with Professor Ron Davis before returning to Australia at the end of 2020. Chris is a member of the Open Medicine Foundation Scientific Advisory Board, the RTHM Inc. Scientific Advisory Board in the US, and importantly to our discussion today, a member of the Emerge Australia Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Anne. That was a very lovely and long introduction. I appreciate it very much. (laughs) Lots of big words. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a lot of that, a lot of the bio words. Yeah, we'll try and keep that to a minimum today. <laughs> I know, I know. Thank you. <laughs> so to get us started, I'm just interested to understand what led you into the field of MECFS research initially and where did it all begin for you? So where it began for me was I did a, a Bachelor of Science at the University of Melbourne, and then I wanted to get into the honours program, and I was actually very interested in metabolomics as a new field. This was very new back then. This is back in the early 2000s, 
Anna was an area where there was a lot of potential for looking at metabolites, which are, I'll probably talk a little bit about today, which are amino acids, sugars, different types of compounds that you would see on the back of an ingredients label for foods. But these are the little compounds that make up your body and involved in all the chemical processes that, that go along with life. And so I was interested in studying these particular compounds. And there was happened to be a project up, which was for MECFS, looking at a particular metabolite in the gut called D-lactate. And so I did that for an honors project. In, in doing that, I, well, I tried a lot of different techniques to try and measure this compound, which is very difficult. And in doing that, I became pretty well first in metabolomics, and then I went on to do a PhD in this space. So that's actually how I got into it. I don't have, I'm one of the rare researchers, I think, that doesn't have a, a personal connection or some other connection involved. There's quite, well, I was for a while. There's a lot more people involved now, but for a while I was one of the few in this field in the early days. And so from there, I really got to know MECFS patients when I was recruiting for my studies. I spoke a lot with a clinician in Donvale called Dr. Don Lewis here in Melbourne. He was a very well-respected clinician in this space who since passed away, um, sadly. But he, his inspiration was a, a big part of me continuing on. And, and obviously, when you start working and researching in this field, you see how unfair it is that this condition has so little information and the stigmatization as, as well that I even went through when explaining my research to people generally. And so I think that kind of triggered off something in me in regarding to how unfair it was that I felt like it was something that I would dedicate a lot of my research time to. Yeah. I, I think I can, re I can relate to that because having not come from the field of MECFS but having worked over the last, you know, 13, 14 years in, in kidney disease, I thought that was a tough gig, but, you know, listening to the plight of people with MECFS and now long COVID patients, you, you sort of, you just want to do something and you want to make a difference. And so I, I guess I, I understand where your passions come from. That's really interesting to hear. So on to our first question. And I mentioned in the intro, the Melbourne MECFS collaboration which I believe was established in 2020 under the Open Medicine Foundation in partnership with Emerge Australia. Can you explain to our listeners a bit about the collaborative research centres and how they operate under the Open Medicine Foundation banner? Sure, I could definitely do that. So I think for a long period of time, when I started researching this field, it was back in 2010. And in that period of time, it was actually very, there was actually a very small field. It's a small field now in terms of how many people are involved, but it was very, it was tiny. I probably knew just about everybody in this field, or at least had read about everyone in the field at that time. And a lot of the issues that we were having within the space was poor funding, which is still ongoing. And that poor funding really led to researchers themselves kind of coming in, maybe getting twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to do a very small study, maybe finding something, maybe not, but either way, not being able to find more funding to then follow up that research. And so a lot of findings kind of got trapped within studies. And usually when people find something good within a study, you think they're going to follow up on it. But if they don't have the funding, 
they don't end up doing that necessarily. And so a lot of the time that was actually kind of happening within this field early. And so you could see papers probably even in the 90s and the early thousands that had really interesting findings that never had follow-ups. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that these groups weren't properly supported beyond that. And so how do you deal with a rare disease? Well, it's not a rare disease, but how do you deal with a, a disease that's treated like a rare disease where it's not well-funded? And so Open Medicine Foundation put to, uh, was put together, I think, in 2012, and they actually raised a lot of funding, and, and their idea was to try and support these collaborative research centers, which is trying to provide funding to support as a safety net for these these foundation uh, for these collaborative research centers so that they as a pillar or a hub get funded and supported long term and those hubs are meant to collaborate broadly with other groups within their region or worldwide even if they wanted to but any of these projects that are kind of happening collaboratively with this group or this hub uh, at least the findings from whatever those ventures happen continue on and a support of within researchers that are commonly dedicated long-term to this disease. And it's really just trying to support people long-term within the illness as researchers. That's what they're trying to accomplish there. And so doing that requires a bit of funding and quite a bit of effort in fundraising. And so Open Medicine Foundation initially started with Stanford University, then they opened a hub with Harvard University, Uppsala and Montreal, and then finally Melbourne was was the last one in 2020 that was was opened up and so we operate as directors of each of these hubs we operate all these centers we operate by discussing our research once a month on on open calls that we talk about it we keep each other up to date and uh, discuss collaborative efforts as well as well as the research broadly that's happening so that's really the idea behind it and i think it's something that's been borrowed, I think, from more rare diseases and the NIH as well have set up initiatives in a similar idea mm. or concept. So this is something that isn't entirely new, but definitely probably the right strategy, I'd say, for this disease. Of course, in Australia, we've got, got collaborative research centres that are very different. Yeah. They're set up around commercialisation and you need a lot of commercial partners to get them off the ground. Unfortunately, in the area of MECFS, and now as everyone's finding in long COVID, uh, those partners just aren't there, particularly when you're talking about science and you're talking about the pharmaceutical industry, which is yeah. a big challenge. Big yeah, challenge. that's right. I mean, it's hard. you've got to bring everyone together and you've got to kind of make yourself like big, like look like a big player and, and try and make yourself look bigger so that you get the attention of these other industries. Mm. Um, this, is a, this is part of it. It's just trying to effectively get interest from pharmaceutical countries, get interest from funding capabilities outside of you know, the, the groups of philanthropic donors and, and government that, that, or small funding yes. agencies. Well, that is, that's a huge challenge. It's a challenge for research. It's a challenge for service delivery, and we'll talk a little bit more probably about that further on. But, yeah, yeah thank you for that explanation because uh, it's a really important one for us to keep in mind and I think also important for us to jointly collaborate on at the local level. So, yeah, thank you for that explanation. I think I think that's well, that's one thing that I wanted to highlight is the collaborative component of the CRC is is really meant to be at the local level. Like we we are very open collaboratively 
with any groups around Australia, around the world. We yeah. kind of invite that. And that's, that's what we, it's kind of leveraging the expertise of other researchers to work on this disease. We don't want to have to learn how to do every type of technique. We want to work with them to use their technique on these patients to understand more. Mm. That's kind of, that's the idea behind it. And uh, so collaboration within Australia is, is really critical, I think. And I'm very supportive of that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest issues in MECFS is the lack of objective biomarkers. And I believe the Open Medicine Foundation are funding a study in the identification of objective biomarkers for MECFS. Can you please tell us a bit about this important work and what your findings are to date? Because it strikes me that if you get a biomarker, you know, that can then lead to a test, you know, that ultimately has flow-on effects. So really interested in that piece of research that you've been doing. So, okay, excellent. So objective markers is a, a definitely a broad field. And so if you think about, so we say like a diagnostic biomarker would be a marker like glucose diagnoses, like glucose issues will diagnose diabetes. Looking for like a marker to diagnose MECFS would be one tremendous thing to at least help with the diagnosis. And in some respects, that could be very useful if it's tied directly to the mechanism of action of the illness. So most of these biomarkers or diagnostic biomarkers are tied directly to the way the illness operates and a key fun feature of that illness. And so you kind of have to understand the, path the genesis of the disease which we don't fully understand right in MECFS or long COVID to capture that diagnostic biomarker. But then we do have a lot of markers that are different within MECFS versus healthy controls. Not 100% of the population where we're like, that's definitely what's causing this disease. We don't know that the markers are like that, but they are more increased in this MECFS population. And so we can actually utilize those to help with the diagnostic process. And so what we would call these is differential differential diagnostic biomarkers because when a when a patient is being diagnosed by a clinician, the clinician isn't having a hard time saying this person isn't well versus someone who's healthy. They can kind of tell straight away that there's something wrong with these people. The hard part is differentiating exactly what type of thing they're going to diagnose them with. And that's the long time consuming part. This is where the patient will get sent away to get scans to see if they have early MS or to see if they have even things like diabetes or get scans for blood works. They'll go through all sorts of different types of tests to narrow down or effectively exclude a lot of diseases. And that's what the diagnosis of MECFS requires. So that process is actually very time consuming. It could take years and there's a certain level of expertise to do it. A lot of GPs kind of refuse to even take that on or don't take it on in a, in a very appropriate or proper way. It can be said. Of course, many, many also do. And so getting to that diagnosis to us, I think, is something really important because I think about, it takes about two to three years on average for someone with MECFS to get that diagnosis. And that process is so long. So if you could imagine not something that can tell you whether you have MECFS straight away, whereas it's the marker of MECFS, but something that can differentiate and say, you have this pattern of biomarkers. This is meaning like this is 90% associated with MECFS. And 
very rarely, maybe in 10% of cases, this is associated with depression or associated with um, yeah. multiple sclerosis or any of these other conditions. And so therefore, you can almost use these biomarkers to pattern out and, and recognize that this is an ME-CFS or help the clinician be confident in diagnosing an ME-CFS patient a lot earlier than they would otherwise. Sure. And, and that is a huge issue, isn't it? It's the fact that some people, as you say, two or three years, I mean, we've had people tell us it's taken them five years to get a diagnosis right. long. And, and, you know, the field is so wide open. So some form of objective biomarkers that help to narrow that down for the GP would be absolutely amazing. And then, you know, if those biomarkers were enshrined in, dare I say, current MECFS clinical guidelines, that would make it even easier for our clinicians to diagnose. The, the, yeah, I mean, the clinicians are really asking for this. They, they really want something like this, and this, is, this would help out a lot. I mean, so, so, what, so, we, so a PhD student in, in, our, in our group has conducted a study on the UK Biobank looking at thousands of people from MECFS but also from other common comorbidities like people with hypertension, migraines, with depression, people with other common comorbidities that occur within MECFS to look at differentiating markers. And then from this, we've found some pretty interesting potential for separating out MECFS patients from these things that are common comorbidities within this disease. And so we we think there's potential there. And at the same time, Open Medicine Foundation is is putting together a project to look at biomarkers with differential biomarkers which is looking at MECFS patients versus a number of other closely associated diseases that are commonly misdiagnosed within MECFS to find these differential biomarkers. So that's something that is the big project that's going on, I think, there. On the other side, there's objective biomarkers, which these differential diagnosis biomarkers that I'm talking about may not be, they'll be useful for diagnosis. We don't know if they'll be useful for drug discovery and treatment trials. They may very well be, but would also be interested, we're also interested in setting up a trial looking for markers that's objective markers that specifically provide information on improvement in MECFS patients. And to do that, uh, we require capturing data from MECFS patients during periods of when they're feeling good, when they're feeling bad, and maybe average as well. And so if we can get each, each individual to give us markers or, or samples during those different three intervals, we could start to pattern out what may be changing as they improve broadly. And so that's the type of project where we'll be looking to specifically find an objective marker for the purposes of the clinical trials. Wow, that's really exciting. It's, it's so important. It's such important work. So thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Can you talk about a bit about the individualized approach to understanding MECFS and you know expand on what you mean about that because that's an area of great interest to you I know Yeah this, this is uh, this is very much a, a main target for us and so personalized research is about well first of all it's it's recognizing that people are unique and we're all unique. And when we get disease, that's also kind of unique to us because, it, you know, whatever is causing that problem, there is 
similarities across people with that disease, but there is also things that are very specific to us. And personalized research generally in all diseases is becoming a bigger and bigger field and bigger area of interest because a lot of the things that have that can help majority, maybe 80% of a population with a disease, don't necessarily help 20% of that population. Mm. And there are differences between people that, that are the reasons for this. So what you're looking at doing is trying to characterize how an individual's disease works with them. And so if you think of like a disease versus healthy control population, what you're looking for is when you're comparing MECFS versus healthy controls, you're looking for markers or things that are different specifically within MECFS compared to a healthy person. And that type of study is really trying to target the pathogenesis of the disease generally. If, if I were to find 100% of my MECFS patients happen to have this compound higher or lower than all the people that had healthy were healthy controls in my study, I'd be thinking, well, we're onto a, a biomarker here. Potentially, this is the core of the pathogenesis of the problem because all the people that meet MECFS have this. Yeah. Now, but personalized research is assume, not assuming that everyone within the MECFS cohort has the exact same mechanism causing their symptoms. Because MECFS is defined by symptoms, I don't think it's reasonable. I don't think it's, I don't think you should assume that everyone has the exact same biological process producing those symptoms. Yeah. There could be other reasons why they're producing those symptoms. And so when you assume that everyone is having the same disease process, you're going to miss out if, if you happen to find that 10 people within a 20 person cohort happen to have one disease process happening and another 10 have a completely opposite and maybe different disease process happening. And then when you can add them together, you don't actually see what that process is. It looks like a mess and it could look like they look the same as healthy controls. Any marker that we looked at in healthy control versus a disease population study, may, whether it was up or down or didn't change, that may not be relevant at all to a personalized disease study. And so instead of looking at healthy control versus disease, we would look at just the disease patients or MECFS patients, and we would look at days when they feel different, they would feel different within their disease. So if they feel relatively well, if they've just gone into a crash, what does a crash look like biologically compared to non-crash days? What does a good day look like compared to a worse symptom day? If fatigue is elevated, what's going on? What's changing in that individual? And so then you start, so you require to take multiple, lots of samples from an individual in a relatively short period of time. That's how that would work. And so you're trying to characterize that individual. And then once you understand biologically what's changing in them during different interventions and different states of being, then you add that and you compare other people who in the yeah. same way and you start to cluster or group people that respond in similar ways. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face MECFS and long COVID. It's, a, it's sort of, while you're talking, I'm thinking of cancer treatment and I'm thinking of targeted therapy mm -hmm. because, you know, targeted therapy now is... You know, it's a lifesaver for many. And, uh, but, you know, so that's targeted. If we could 
we could have identified in a, in a large cohort some similarities, then we could work on targeting how to deal with that cohort maybe in one area that is is similar to all of them, you know? That's right. That's exactly that's that's exactly right. And this is really borrowing from these diseases that have kind of laid the path in trialing all this sort of work out and you're looking at the things that they've used and how that can be adapted for what the problems that we have here in MECFS. And yeah. so that's that's you you bang on with that. And so a study, a large study that we have have, have begun and in the process of going through ethics for is looking to monitor patients under the guidance of their GP and looking to see the treatments that that GP is providing to them and monitoring their reaction to those treatments over time with the purpose of looking for free, like the, the samples that we take before they try the treatment, we'd be looking to see what about those markers then indicated how they went or how successful that treatment was on that individual. And that's very similar to what they're doing with cancer, as you just described. They, that's how they, they actually get to that. They characterize the, they'll characterize the individual, the cancer itself. They'll have the treatment added. And then they'll see if it was successful, they'll say, well, what about this type of cancer? What markers do we have that show that these people were the ones that were then going to succeed? And so the increase of machine learning and other artificial intelligence-based statistical modeling and and predictive modeling mechanisms, these type of stats are ideal for this type of purpose where you effectively put in front of the, the, the it, well, you put through the, you get the data of of what happened before they were given an intervention, and was that intervention successful? Was it not successful? And then you're asking it to look for markers within the data that you had before they tried it to see what was what about that indicated that. And then next time you find a patient that has those same markers, you go, well, let's try that same treatment that we were having before. Yeah. So as you were talking, Chris, I was wondering, you know, you said you're working with GPs and their patients. How difficult is it to to enlist patients? As you know, we've got the OSME registry and the Mason Foundation uh, Emerge Australia Biobank. You know, is that a, would that be a source of patients for you? How difficult is it to get GPs to work with you who know what, you know, who've got patients that they've diagnosed? And should we be promoting through this this uh, podcast that people sign up to the OSME registry and and Biobank at Emerge Australia? Yeah, I would I would definitely always strongly promote people sign up to these registries. Uh, and uh, and the biobanks because these are an excellent resource for research, especially for markers or, or things that we haven't thought to test on MECFS patients. These sort of tests, things, new things are coming out all the time, and the only way like someone in who's never trialed an MECFS before can probably get access to testing this fantastic new assay they have. That's the only way that they probably would get access to. Absolutely. This is definitely a really important resource, I would say. For our particular study, for the GPs, we'd be working with the GPs specifically and whatever their patients are. And so we would definitely encourage any GPs who would would want their treatment process 
to be monitored and the, and the patients that they're treating to be monitored biologically in the way that we've just described. We would love to work with anyone around um, with all, within, currently within Victoria because of, of logistics, but we would love to work with any of them to help our project here and, and potentially yeah, help us help everybody within Australia and the world with this particular project. Great. Great. That's terrific. And we'll mention it at the end of the podcast as well. Thank so you. do you think the emergence of long COVID has had a positive impact and shone a light on MECFS or do you feel MECFS be, is being left behind? And if so, what do you think we can do to change that? That's that's a that's something that I think a lot of, all of us have been thinking about over this whole process. And even when long COVID came out and we <clears throat> all knew that this was going to, or when COVID came out, we all knew that this was going to be a side effect of increased incidences of MECFS or post-viral infection syndrome. I mean, at the time, we didn't know they were going to give it a different name, but it really, it's something that we have to recognize, I think, as if that didn't happen, we would probably be, I would say, in a worse position in research for MECFS. Currently, a lot of MECFS research and all the research that was done prior to this pandemic, all the understanding of the disease and treatments, pretty much long COVID has been borrowing a lot of MECFS-based understanding. And that just shows how important this field is to research. If this had, a, if we had cracked this before that pandemic, we may not have the problems that we have with long COVID at all. And so this is, to me, is an important initiative to say, well, we need to crack it now because another pandemic could definitely come along. Yeah. And I think that is a nice talking point to get politicians involved, governments involved in getting more funding. But I am heartened by the amount of funding that long COVID has got within Australia, but in the worldwide. I would definitely see, like to see it's a good start. It's obviously not enough to, to, to keep this going. And so if we want to keep research in these fields going, I think it's important that we get more funding. MECFS will be benefited by long COVID research, definitely. I liken the idea of saying that you know, MECFS was was originally brought about in the late 1980s as a diagnosis I mean, by the C CDC. Obviously, it was diagnosed in 1969 or actually 1965 earlier by Melbourne Ramsey. Yeah. The, the diagnosis that we know of today, the idea was that there was a lot of different chronic-based diseases, chronic post-viral infection or post-infection syndromes that were called disparate names all around the world. And probably the leading one was called chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. And so pretty much MECFS was built on a lot of chronic Epstein-Barr virus work because we know that glandular fever produced a lot of MECFS patients. And so that's why, that's even why, that's why we do the six months is because EBV is such a long infection. That's why it was done initially as in a minimum of six months, because that's what chronic Epstein-Barr virus required. So that's a little tip you may not know. So they've since reduced that down. More recent definitions have gone down to three months, which I think is probably more appropriate personally, because these people have this condition pretty early and it's better to get people earlier in this disease for research purposes and for helping them out as well. But I think what's happened with long COVID is we're really focusing on the infection. And I see a lot of these patients with long COVID ending up with an MECFS-based diagnosis. But obviously the infection does have an impact 
on these patients. And that would be the same with people with ME-CFS. I imagine that people with ME-CFS that were all in, triggered by EBV virus, we grouped them together and looked as a comparison against the rest of ME-CFS that weren't triggered by EBV, I think we would see differences. And that research has never been done, but that, that sort of thing we've thought about doing prior to long COVID. And I think it's an interesting way of looking at the disease through the lens of the infection agent, because there are going to be lingering outcomes because of that infectious agent. At the same time, the whole point of MECFS was that regardless of this infectious agent, all these people also look similar because there's obviously a strong host response issue that's happening here. And that's what we're really trying to define in MECFS. And that takes my brain down a track on a tangent into MS and the fact that so much of MS is precipitated by Epstein-Barr virus and where the connections are between those people with MS triggered by Epstein-Barr virus and those people with ME-CFS triggered by Epstein-Barr virus and yeah. what research has been done in that area. It, it you know, early MS often gets misdiagnosed at ME-CFS before these patients get the, 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 uh, the myelin degradation that shows up within an MRI scan, before they get all that sort of work that happens, they'll show symptoms very similar to ME-CFS. And besides that diagnostic marker of MS, which obviously precipitates a lot of specific symptoms, they have all these other symptoms that are very similar to ME-CFS. And so it really calls into question, like, what's the nature of disease? Is, yeah. the, is this a disease that's separate from this, or is it that they just didn't precipitate this particular outcome or comorbidity or problem? And generally, they're also having a, a, an issue. And typically, you know, this infection with long COVID, it's creating a lot of neuroinflammation issues, likely outcomes of or long COVID, general outcomes of of issues with like uh, neurodegenerative problem, Parkinson's are likely to increase Alzheimer's. And I think part of it is we're just blind to this. We didn't look at this sort of work in the context of other viruses or other infections prior to long COVID. Yeah. Because we've shone a light on it, that we're now aware of becoming more aware of this space. I think there was obviously a few people in this these fields that were aware of this, but it's becoming more and more apparent because of long COVID. I think broadly the scientific community has recognized this because of long COVID. And I feel like MECFS has got more respect research-wise since long COVID has come about. I've noticed definitely a, a significant level of interest in MECFS since long COVID has come about. So I think people definitely feel more, more like mm, maybe we misunderstood or mischaracterized this condition. Going forward, it's going to be interesting how we manage research. But I think, um, you know, you could have long COVID and still meet an MECFS diagnosis. And so those that population where you have the specific infection and the specific set of uh, diagnostic criteria that require to meet an MECFS condition, they're going to be a very specific cohort that will be interesting to study. Of course, you have other broad other lots of people with MECFS from other triggers. And I think we're going to get creative with how we think about trying to get more funding for this particular area and these particular patients. I think that is something of an issue that we need to think about and um, maybe get proactive with to try and help. We'll talk about funding in 
in a couple of seconds. We've got about 15 minutes left. You've been involved in exploring the role of nitrogen metabolism and energy metabolism in MECFS, and a number of researchers have cited you on something called the nitrogen hypothesis. You haven't published a specific paper on this yet, so can you tell us a little bit about what the nitrogen hypothesis is? So, yeah, the nitrogen hypothesis is really based around amino acids, which are in our body that we use to build all the muscles and, and tissues that we have. And these amino acids, uh, and, and also collagen and important things like that, I should mention, these amino acids have this thing called nitrogen. That's what differentiates it from things called like fat and sugars, is they have this atom called, uh, which is called nitrogen. And that provides rigidity in the structure of the compounds that allows it to behave quite differently. But you can break down amino acids, you can break down fats, you can break down sugar, and you break it into carbons to produce energy. And that happens within glycolysis and in mitochondria. Mitochondria is what actually glycolysis is just for glucose, but within mitochondria, you can access the use of fats and, and amino acids for energy production. But when you produce energy from amino acids, you have to do something with that nitrogen. And so that usually goes through the process of going through the urea cycle and you would create urea, which is the safe end product of removing nitrogen from the body. But then you also have things like ammonia, which can be quite toxic and that can get sequestered and built up within cells. You also have nitric oxide, which is an important marker, an important signaling molecule, but also potentially involved in a number of different mechanisms that are required for appropriate functionality of the, of the cells. And so if you're utilizing more amino acids, you're producing more of these byproducts effectively. These are things where your body's gone, we're not producing ammonia or urea or, or nitric oxide because we need those molecules. We're producing it because we actually need the carbons from your amino acids, right? And so you're getting this byproduct that's not necessarily wanted within the cells. And that sequestering could be somewhat damaging. And we like this as a as um, a hypothesis because at its very basic core, this is something that could be prevalent across broadly across all patients in some fashion. But the way that you get to that thing happening could be variable and create yeah. a lot of heterogeneity in disease. So is that something that you test through, you know, a, a specific blood test off a blood sample? Yeah, so that's so the, you can, but it's not within the blood that we actually care about this. It's actually, you know, th these things are created in the mitochondria, and, and I'm going to oh. use an analogy here that's a little, a little bit gross, but it's sort of like a sewage system, right? And this, the blood would be like a sewage system, like the, the sewers and stuff within a city. Yeah. But with each cell is like a house, and you have producing energy, but you have waste that you produce, and it goes into through portal has to get taken from the house into yeah. the sewage system. And so, if you have a blockage at the point of the, if you have issues at the at the plumbing at the point of the house, yep. across all these places, you're getting that accumulation or problem occurring within the house and not necessarily within the sewage system, which would be in this analogy, the blood. That's and so true. we're we're really interested in what's happening within the cell itself. But it's very hard to measure these compounds because a lot yeah. of these 
things that we're looking at are very reactive and what makes them dangerous and and how they could they completely they can stop energy metabolism they can which which we think could be really important they create brain fog ammonia if you look it up a lot of the symptom components are like well this could be at a mile for pretty significant for what creates yeah. well, so, happening in in so many that have got the fatigue and yeah. and the brain fog and and you know unable to do much as a, as an outcome that's that's fascinating yeah that's that's, that's hypothesis. yeah that's but because they're so but so because they're so reactive they're hard to measure because they change so quickly they alter proteins and that's that's been the difficult thing about testing this so we will release this information and data we're trying to test this hypothesis i was thinking about publishing the hypothesis but for the time being I, I'm, I'm more focused on testing this hypothesis and then releasing that publication hopefully this year wonderful we look forward to it yeah so last couple of questions as someone who has been highly successful in accessing research funding, what do you believe we need to do in Australia to attract more funds into MECFS research? Yeah, that's, um, I think to get more funding in MECFS, I think we need we need to really lobby the government for for major funding for what it deserves, the quantity of funding that's required within this country to support a great MECFS field, which we have a really, really we have one of the best research fields in the world, I would say, within this country. And we could really expand that and become leaders within this space. But we deserve a lot more funding for these patients and for the research that we actually managed to do. So I think lobbying government is a critical part here, which was pretty successfully done to some degree quite a few years ago. And we were actually able, they put out a targeted call for research for a few million dollars, which we were lucky enough to capture some funding for a project we're, we're conducting but more of that type of funding would be excellent for this field and i think very deserving and i think working on larger scale collaborative projects really help out getting a team up getting really high quality publications going that can be more competitive against other diseases because really when we're putting an application that isn't specifically a targeted call for MECFS, if it's an application for any type of research we're going up against everybody all these other diseases really that's that's what we're, it's it's more about putting a hand up and going we're more important to fund than this you know mm. than this and this and it's hard competing against them because they already have had such historically high levels of funding it's just that's sort of right. grandfathered in yeah and when you when you look back and you see how much money was put up in that targeted call and then you look at, well, how much research has government funded into MECFS over the last 10 years compared yeah. to all other medical research? I mean, we don't even get into the 0. 0.000 whatever yeah. percentage. And that's the problem that, you know, it and that perpetuates that whole feeling by patients of who cares about us? No one, because they won't even give us you know, any respectable money on a regular basis for research into this field. So, yeah, absolutely. We Collaboration is the key. And uh, it was very disappointing to see the long COVID inquiry come out with only one recommendation, recommendation eight, 
around more funds to be poured into NECFS research and service delivery, and so far zero has been delivered. Yeah, I think that's that is disappointing, and I, 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 my, I do worry that they they think that just long COVID research generally is going to help the MECFS community as a whole. I think it may help in some aspects, as I said before, with some insights, but it's not going to targetly help, and especially within service delivery, I don't see how that's helpful at all. So uh, I think, yeah. I think that's a, that's something that we need to address and bring forward to the government, and I guess explain it. It's it's something that's kind of complicated because there is the way that peer review research is funded is based on a system where you have to have already been given funding to get good quality, high quality research completed to then get further funding. You know what I mean in the space. So. And even the long COVID space, you know, we have a lot of great MECFS researchers in this country. Um, I don't, really don't know if any of them were able to get funding within these long COVID rounds or if any of them will. Fingers crossed that we do. We see, we see a few MECFS researchers with their experience, even just working within the long COVID space. Because as I mentioned, you can still get, get people in that have a long COVID diagnosis and an MECFS diagnosis. So maybe that's a way of sneakily getting yeah. research money into 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 helping any CFS patients. Certainly a huge issue and one that we all need to work on together. Yeah, I agree. And work collaboratively with government as well. So finally, this is a little pet question of my own. There are many in the US who are looking at MECFS and post-acute sequelae of COVID as part of a broader integrated post-infection disease strategy. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on the fact that Yale School of Medicine, among others, has established a new post-acute infection syndrome school of medicine in relation to a a post-infection disease or syndrome strategy and the establishment of a division of medicine here in Australia. What are your thoughts on that? I'm I'm delighted that they they pushed it to that because they could have easily just made it about long COVID, but they've definitely tried to name it more about post-infection disease to try and be more inclusive towards things like MECFS. And so I'm I'm delighted by that. And I think their target, the way that they're going about their research, especially over there in Yale, is exactly how I would like to envisage this type of work getting done and their coordination. And I think that would be a great model for us to get happening here in Australia. If something like that could be put together, where you're getting a combination of treatments, clinics, working together with research and focusing on the outcomes of problems and really personalised approach is what they're going for. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of very excited to see what comes of that and I would like to see more of that here. Great. So finally, do you have any final words of hope for our listeners? Because as you know, this area has been bereft of hope. People are very frustrated. They've been waiting a very long time and nothing's changed for them. Are there any final words of hope that you can provide to those people listening who may have MECFS and long COVID and maybe caring for someone? I, Yeah, I I do have a lot of hope myself, having seen where the research field was 10 years ago to even where it was five years ago. It's really improving leaps and bounds and not just in the scale of the type of research and things that are happening, but people's understanding of the disease 
taking into consideration, you know, what this diagnosis means, what these people have, what they go through, ways to help them, and, and focusing more on clinical translation. More than initially, a lot of the research was focused on the pathogenesis or trying to understand the disease, because if we understood that, then we could get to it to help much faster. But because of its complexity and the problem, the heterogeneity, I think, within this illness. Other types of research more and impressive levels of research are really being conducted in this space. And it's, it's improving every year. And every year I see better publications. I think last year I had some amazing kind of publications that came through from the US, especially. I thought there was some amazing work done bearing into ER stress and looking at inflammation and uh, oxidative stress as well. These are key markers and things that were able to capture in a lot of the MECFS patients, as well as like, you know, David Sistrom's work, Alain Moreau, Jonas Berkwist, they're, they're really great findings. So I, I would, I have a lot of hope myself. So if anything, I would, I would hope that perhaps that is something that's comforting to the patients. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Chris Armstrong, for an excellent and informative interview. And thank you so much for your time today. <clears throat> Today's podcast is part of a clinical series that Emerge Australia is recording with people of influence. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID in Australia. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget for more information and to sign up to our Osby Registry and Biobank or to subscribe to the Emerge Australian newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Chris, thanks again and bye for now. Thank you very much for having me. You may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one And I hope someday you'll join us And the world